This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Unfortunately, you guys got the long version of my bio, which I thought we had gotten rid of because sometimes when your bio is longer than you're going to plan to speak, I'm also glad I did not wear that suit and tie. It's a little, it's a little um, daunting to have your big face up behind your, your head. Um, I really appreciate the, the invite on what I'm, I'm calling uh, Earth Day Eve. Um, you know, tomorrow's Earth Day. This week gets turned into Earth Week, but really at EPA, every day is Earth Day. Um, and that's what we, we focus on. Um, before I go any further, uh, as Dr. Weston pointed out, I am a blue hat. Um, but like the rest of the Delaware Valley was pulling for the Cats in the NCAA tournament. So congratulations to all of you for that uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, win and that tremendous game. Um, so I speak at a lot of places, and, and a lot of times I hear uh, when I'm speaking, uh, particularly if there are students involved, other speakers will uh, mention that you are the the future environmental leaders, the future environmental stewards. Um, let me be very clear. You are the current environmental stewards and you are the current environmental leaders. Um, we very much count on you, um, your leadership, your, 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 uh, your consumer value, uh, and what you look at and what you want, and, and really kind of forcing us uh, to be held accountable, all of our leaders. Uh, and making sure that your public health and your environment are protected not only now, but well into the future. Uh, and so, uh, really a pleasure to be here uh, with the, the, the great panelists, uh, you know, with David, Mark, and Joanne, Lori, uh, who I believe is behind me, uh, and, and Owen, and each of their organizations and each of what they do uh, are looking to help hold all of us accountable for various um, things. And, David and I run into each other in very strange places. Uh, last year, we had the Clean Air Council 5K, um, which we took an opportunity to, to talk about a lot of the important things. Now, tomorrow is the 46th anniversary of Earth Day. Um, and so, 46 years kind of sounds like a long time, but in environmental terms, uh, and in terms of the life of this planet, it's very short. Um, and so, um, when the first Earth Day came around, Philadelphia actually played a big part, uh, both by uh, students at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and also down on Independence Mall. Um, really, um, it's my understanding, uh, and I have to tell you, I was very, very, very young then, so I don't remember the TV coverage, but Philadelphia was one of several cities uh, that was covered on, on CBS News uh, on the first Earth Day just because of the, it was like 70,000 people who got engaged in it. Um, and so it's really important for us to look at our past, look at where we are currently, and, and look at the future. There's a lot of new challenges, and none greater than climate change. Um, and as an agency, uh, clearly we have been focused on climate change um, very, very significantly. Uh, if you look at the impacts of climate change, uh, you look at sea level rise, um, you look at um, more severe storms, more greater um, changes in our weather. And there's no one event that we can attribute to that's because of climate change. But when you look at how the dynamic has changed, climate change is making things more severe and are making them happen.
So, you know, you look at the temperature rise in Pennsylvania, which has risen a, a half degree uh, in the last 50 years. The Delaware River has risen one inch um, uh, every eight years. The Delaware River likely to rise four feet by uh, the year 2100. Uh, and so we really need to rethink the way we're doing that. Uh, and so the president laid, laid out a, a um, uh, climate action plan and was really focused on three things. One, cutting carbon pollution. Two, uh, protecting our communities and making sure that uh, we're more resilient and can adapt better to the climate that is already changing. This is not something we all know that will happen in the future. It's happening now. And then lastly, being uh, a world leader. Uh, and so um, when you're looking at that directive, you know, we have to clean power plant, which is really the way in which we're structured dealing with the largest source uh, of carbon pollution, which is our power plants. Now, Disclaimer, which is currently the Supreme Court has stayed any activity uh, of us enforcing the Clean Power Plan, uh, but we believe, based on the science and the law, uh, that we will prevail uh, and we continue to work with states who have interest in getting technical support on, on things that they're, they're working on. Um, but it, it goes greater than that. You know, we're working with our community. We're working with the city of Philadelphia on their Green Cities Clean Water. Uh, initiative, which is really dealing with stormwater issues uh, uh, and adding in green infrastructure tools and doing that, which has a, not only does it help with the water quality, but it really helps with the quality of life of the city. Uh, and so you're seeing trees that are put in place. You're seeing rain gardens that are put in place. I, I look out my window uh, onto the parkway and there's a, there's a, a green street that is being installed right down my office. Um, and this also has a benefit on climate. Uh, it helps to reduce the heat island effect. It helps to control stormwater uh, when we're having these severe storms so that they're not having uh, the impacts on, on our community. Uh, and we've provided grants to local uh, universities here in Philadelphia area. We've got uh, Temple, uh, Penn, uh, Swarthmore, and yes, Philadelphia. Uh, we've given a million dollars to Villanova uh, to, to look at uh, developing uh, and creating demo projects for really next generation green infrastructures and looking at how that kind of impacts the, the economy. So um, there's a lot of great things that are going on, uh, but there's a lot of work that we have to do. And then lastly, uh, on the front of um, focusing on being a world leader, um, the United States and EPA were very instrumental in getting the Paris Agreement signed. Um, last year, uh, which is really holding um, 186, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood, countries accountable for doing their part. Uh, and this is where it comes to you all. Uh, I mentioned earlier about holding us accountable. Um, you are current leaders, uh, but you're also individuals. Uh, and so what you do in both of those fronts matter. Uh, so you know, think about 2020. That's the, the next time that the, the world uh, leaders are going to be checking in uh, and taking a look at how well they're doing as they're accomplishing the Paris Agreement. Where are you going to be in 2020? What are the things that you're doing? How are you going to lead? How are you going to hold us accountable and making sure that we're protecting your planet, uh, your public health, again, not only now and in the future? Now, Dr. Weston mentioned that I, I live uh, with my wife and son in, in Delaware. My son is 15 years old. I am the head of the, 
environmental protection agencies, mid-Atlantic region. I would argue he's still more environmental in my house than I am. Um, our students are the reason we have curbside recycling. Um, our students are the reason that people are not buying the big, huge Hummers to get around. Um, if I could just convince him to turn the water off, a lot of questions to it, we'd be in good shape. So I'm really looking forward to this uh, great discussion uh, today. Um, you have great panelists here, uh, ask a lot of questions. This introduction part, not why I'm here. I'm here to hear this discussion. I'm, I'm here to hear what you all have on your mind, the things that I need to make sure I'm paying attention to while I'm doing my job on behalf of you, uh, because that's why I'm here. Um, I work for all of you and make sure that I'm protecting um, planet, uh, our environment, for all of you, my son, our communities, and our country. So thank you very much, and I look forward to a great discussion. Oh, by the way, no fires. <laughs>
I work for a small nonprofit called the Center for Coalfield Justice, working on underground mining and environmental justice issues. And Southwestern Pennsylvania is a really interesting intersection of environmental justice, coal mining, natural gas extraction, and power plant pollution. So there's a huge amount of industrial activity that's burdening our southernmost counties in the western part of the state. And that's sort of what informed me about my environmental work in Pennsylvania. And I wanted to start just by saying that, you know, you've heard um, these great opening remarks about how individual action is really important and is an indicator of the environmental action that will be taken in the future. But also there are some really significant systems that we all have to be willing to confront if we're really going to be able to tackle the major problems of our time, including climate change. And one of those is resource extraction. So I wanted to start by giving you some really exciting facts. What do we love more than facts? Probably almost anything. Um, <coughs> but just to frame the discussion, there are climate impacts in Pennsylvania that are probably more significant than any one of us as residents of the state realize. So Pennsylvania alone, even if we don't factor in methane emissions, contributes fully 1% of CO2 emissions to the atmosphere. So this state, all of us here together, are contributing 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions just looking at carbon dioxide. We have approximately 200 major electric generation facilities. So that's a huge number of industrial sites that are producing pollution, burdening our communities, and contributing to not only climate change, but other issues like water pollution and environmental justice concerns. Pennsylvania ranks first electricity export and second in electricity production, but only 31st in energy consumed per person. So this means that when we're looking at energy policy in the state of Pennsylvania, we are putting out so much more energy than we're consuming within the state. So all of our policy decisions are really not just about Pennsylvania and our energy needs, but about the needs of the region and the market as a whole. And also methane has been identified as um, counting for 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. And later on in my remarks, I want to talk a bit about the risks that we're looking at when we talk about pipeline build-out. And one of, the, one of the factors that we think about with the impacts from pipelines is methane emissions. So I have a video that I'd like to show. Um, and how many people have seen either a coal mine or a coal refuse disposal area or any kind of impacts from coal mining extraction. So actually quite a, quite a number of you. This, is, this was taken with a drone um, out in southwestern PA by the Center for Coalfield Justice. And this is a 2,000 acre coal refuse disposal area. So the water that you'll see in this video is actually coal slurry. So this is waste, this isn't a lake, this isn't fresh water, this is 2,000 acres of Greene County that's now taken up with coal waste. So you can see, it looks like a beautiful lake. It looks like you wanna you know, go there, put out your beach chair, sit outside, but actually there's this conveyor that's taking coal and, oh sorry. <laughs> so that was just a clip because I don't have very much time, but that's 2,000 acres of coal waste. And that's just one of seven similar facilities in that region. Those were farms. Cattle was raised there decades ago. So now we're looking at a 
significant amount of land that's taken up with waste. And Pennsylvania still has the, the most productive underground mine in the world. So the Bailey Mining Complex in southwestern PA is the most productive underground mine in the world. And one of the impacts that we have from that is coal waste like we saw in the video. Um, talking about pipelines, <laughs> I, in like the burden of being a lawyer in Pennsylvania, you have to maintain continuing legal education credits. And as an environmental attorney, that means that mostly I have to go to uh, very difficult days of continuing legal education presented by industry attorneys, presented by regulators, and sometimes the, the statistics are really sober. So at this most recent environmental law forum, I learned that the existing pipeline infrastructure in Pennsylvania for natural gas constitutes about 12,000 miles. So 12,000 miles spider webbing throughout the state is pipeline infrastructure in the state of Pennsylvania. And when we're thinking about the build out over the next three decades, we're projected to have 50,000 miles of pipelines throughout the state. And just to put that in some perspective, we as a state have 86,000 miles of rivers and streams. So think about how often you encounter a waterway in this state so frequently. It's one of our most proud features. We're going to have, if this continues at this rate, almost as many miles of pipeline as waterways in the state of Pennsylvania. And just to keep the comparisons going, PennDOT only manages 40,000 miles of roadway. So there will be more miles of pipeline than roadway that's managed by our Department of Transportation. And one of the things that I think is really <coughs> important to highlight is the difference in the budget between DEP and PennDOT. So PennDOT's budget is orders of magnitude larger than the Department of Environmental Protection. And this means that even though this is just one facet of what they'll be tasked with regulating over the next few decades, there are no resources with which to do that. <coughs> also, there are only 5,600 miles of railway in Pennsylvania. So we're talking about 10 times more pipeline infrastructure than railroads. And we're one of the states that was founded on the railroad industry. So I think these are really important numbers to think about when we talk about Earth Day and the action of our generation and what we're gonna do and what kind of future we want. Um, again, just highlighting what this means for us. If we have this build out of 50,000 miles, that will result in a footprint of 300,000 acres of pipeline right of way. And that would take up 1% of all the land area in the state. And our state park system, another one of the crown jewels of the state, is only 200,000 acres. So we stand to have more acreage of pipeline right of way than state parkland in the state of Pennsylvania if this is to move forward the way it's currently being built out. And again, just to put this in the context of something you might be familiar with, the city of Philadelphia is 91,000 acres. So we're talking about three times, more than three times, the acreage of the city of Philadelphia to be taken up by pipeline right away. And I know I'm supposed to link this back to what can we do, how are we engaging communities, what's the solution, and one of the things I want to pose to all of you is, as a thought experiment, what would it look like if we had 300,000 acres of solar rather than pipeline build-out? What would it look like if we put solar 
on industrial roofs and didn't have to clear a single tree to make way for an additional 30,000 miles of pipeline. <coughs> so we have some big decisions that we're going to be facing as a community, and these are just sort of the, the basic images that I wanted to get this discussion started with. And I know it's a little bit sobering. It's not the most optimistic viewpoint. But part of the reason I present that to all of you is exactly what we're here to discuss, which is what can we all do about it? We are all collectively the future, and it's going to be our decision whether Philadelphia, the state of Pennsylvania, is the next Houston, the next Gulf Coast, or the next California, Oregon, and all these other places that are making tremendous strides in terms of clean energy and moving away from fossil fuel extraction. Um, I'm really happy to say that the city of Philadelphia through SEPTA just got a federal grant to bring electric vehicles <coughs> into the bus fleet. And so this is going to be a huge, a huge contribution to um, trying to set the example for reducing emissions in the transportation sector, which is another one of our major emission sectors. So there are great things happening, and a lot of it is driven by young people, driven by the universities, driven by organizations that are represented here today. I have no idea if it's been 10 minutes or not, but uh, thank you all very much, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, so it's been kind of, 
It, it, and I, I relate this because I think it's relevant to the discussion we're trying to have about community and climate. Uh, kind of, because I started at the sort of very grassroots level where people were experiencing local impacts and then moved into law and policy on a kind of um, mid-range scale. And now I work for this very, very large organization working on basically climate policy issues focused on the Clean Power Plan in Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the Clean Power Plan. Mr. Garvey mentioned it. Uh, I don't know, first to show of hands, how many people have heard of the Clean Power Plan before tonight? Okay. So uh, as, as Mr. Garvey mentioned, it is uh, a federal initiative to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions from power plants, which are again the largest source of carbon pollution in the United States and therefore the largest contributor to climate change. Um, it is, it is a huge deal. Joanne cited some of the really uh, big factors for power in Pennsylvania. We are a huge generator of power, second in the country, the number one exporter. Uh, we've long been a producer of coal, and therefore coal-fired generation. And now, we're a huge producer of gas, the second biggest producer of gas in the country after only Texas. Uh, and what's happening now is the gas-fired generation is starting uh, to replace coal-fired generation. Um, what I do, uh, working with Joanne and Sierra Club and David and Penn Environment and about, I don't know, 15 other organizations now that are part of our, our coalition, is to try to push Pennsylvania to adopt a plan for implementing the Clean Power Plan in a way that focuses on really clean energy. Now, the Clean Power Plan is a great initiative in part because of its extraordinary flexibility. States have a lot of discretion in terms of how they implement it. The downfall of, of flexibility is that it gives states, states the space to implement the rule in ways that maybe are not ideal. And one way that Pennsylvania could implement the rule is to favor gas more than our organizations, and I think the EPA would like it to. Um, there's a huge amount of pressure in Pennsylvania with all this gas that we're sitting on, or with the market conditions, gas is very cheap, there's a glut of it, producers can't get the money they want for it. They're trying to find markets for gas wherever they can. One of the biggest possible markets is gas-fired electricity generation. So one of the biggest challenges we're working on in Pennsylvania is trying to put a lid somewhat on the new gas-fired generation that's already being built, but that could be built in a, in a on a much larger scale if we're not successful in pushing the state more towards solar, wind, energy efficiency, which is long proven to be the cheapest way, uh, uh, cheapest energy resource. The, the cheapest kilowatt hour generated is the one you don't generate at all. You save the efficiency measures increased, uh, increased insulation and things like that. Um, I don't want to get too wonky. And in fact, I'm going to pull myself back there uh, to talk about, uh, just for a couple minutes, about sort of another issue that I think faces the environmental community. And, and getting too wonky is a kind of good um, uh, step into it because one of the issues I think facing the environmental movement today is it is, in some ways, not a cohesive movement. You know, it started out that way 40 some years ago because there were a lot of crises to react to. Uh, there was an urgent need. Um, there was no legal infrastructure. You know, we didn't have the Clean Water Act. We didn't have the Clean Air Act. There was no EPA. There was no Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. 
there was a huge institutional void, a huge legal void on the government level, and there weren't the nonprofits like those that we all work for today. Um, so the organizations we work for have done a really pretty amazing job, and the EPA has in the last four years, filling that void. Um, in the process, though, in the process of becoming these very sophisticated institutions with a lot of very smart people, a lot of expertise on the policy level, on the science level, we, to some extent, lost the connection with the people. You know, we can produce, uh, Joanne talking about this with her earlier, and she said that people talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, he didn't say, I have a white paper, he said, I have a dream. You know, that's inspiring. We nonprofits today, with our great technical expertise and facing very complicated legal infrastructure that we face, are really good at producing a lot of smart issue briefs, policy papers. Um, NRDC collaborated on one that was just produced, uh, produced yesterday that, that speaks directly to the issues we're talking about today. It's about the energy burden on the poor uh, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and a lot of other cities across the United States and how improved energy efficiency can reduce that burden. It's a great white paper, although I think it is. I haven't actually had a chance to read it yet. But there is an enormous volume of really smart literature out there and with the internet, you can access almost all of it. It's hard to find time to read it. It's hard to get through it, sometimes given the very complicated and weaklies and wonky way in which it's written. So I think one thing that I've been thinking about lately is how do we, how do we you know, get back to communicating things in a way that makes it more of a movement. Um, so that it's, it's, it's more of an integral part of people's lives rather than another isn't. We don't just have environmentalism, we just don't have environmentalists. You know, as I think both Mr. and Jonathan suggested, you know, this is the generation to kind of take up the mantle going forward. And I think the challenge for our institutions is to um, bring some of the really smart thinking that we've done uh, into people's lives better so that they can kind of better integrate it and it will be better part of the, kind of the social fabric of their lives. So I will stop there. Okay, so we're gonna take a pause along the, the line of the table there and have Lori Pearson. And we lost your, your video on our screen. I think maybe we might have got you back. Uh, and Lori has a few PowerPoint slides that I will uh, control on, on this end. So Lori, just tell me. Tell me when you want to advance if, I'm, if I haven't gotten the, the, the blue field. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, I, I'm looking at all of you now, but I'm going to switch to my presentation. Um, it's been fascinating to listen to the presentation of, of domestic issues. Um, I'm going to ask you, as my Star Wars obsessed children would say, to move to a galaxy far, far away and think about the smallholder farmer in developing countries in Africa and Asia, Latin America, um, and the impact that climate change is, is having on them. So you want to go to the first slide um, to answer the, the question
discussion that Dr. Weston has laid out for us, Catholic Relief Services is definitely looking at climate change as a key challenge of the future. Um, but we're not looking at climate change as an environmental challenge per se, but really as a threat multiplier. And this is the term that's been coined by the military complex and is being used by the G7 to talk about how climate change is exacerbating a multiplicity of threats and challenges that we're already facing. And CRS has been working in the realm of food security and hunger for more than 70 years. And so we're very much looking at the issue of climate change from a food security and hunger perspective. And, and I think we're starting from agriculture because it's both a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions as well as a victim of the consequences of climate change. And I think just to situate that a bit, uh, agriculture is the number three contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. When we talk about that, we're really talking about mechanized industrial agriculture, uh, massive land use conversion, uh, major uh, ranching operations, livestock operations, uh, industrial size, uh, uh, commodity loss, this kind of thing. The smallholder farmers that CRS serves really are having very little contributions to the problem. Uh, they don't have the asset base, they don't have the resources to really have a big impact there. But unfortunately, although they're doing the least to contribute to the problem, because they're so dependent on the land and rainfall and nature to eke out their livelihoods and their food, they are hit hardest by the consequences of climate change. So we uh, have really been taking a look at, at what we're hearing from the farmers that we're working with in terms of the effects that they're feeling and the need to adjust and adapt to, to cope with the consequences. So we started to do some climate modeling uh, in a number of countries uh, on agricultural communities. And one thing that we found is that farmers, poor smallholder farmers, who are farming degraded land and on poor soils fare much worse in the anticipated consequences of climate change than farmers who are on quality soil. So we've done a study, for example, in El Salvador that uh, showed that farmers who are already on poor soil are likely to face a 32% loss in yields of staple crops like maize and beans. Um, while farmers who are on quality, quality soil are projected to face a one to 3% loss. So um, the next slide, please. What this told us is that we really need to look a little more closely at the issue of degraded land. And that in fact, we are in the midst of a global soils crisis that is very pertinent for global food security. In Africa, 65% of farmland is uh, classified as degraded. And globally, we face a loss of, of that's happening at 10 to 40 times the rate that nature can replenish it. 
And that means that every year, cropland equivalent to the size of Indiana is being lost to cultivation. Next slide. Oh, before you go to the next slide, I just want to call attention in this photo, some moderately degraded land. If you look down the middle there, you see uh, a major gully where soil is washing away, nutrients are washing away, rainfall is lost. Just take note of that, I'm going to come back to it. Um, next slide. You'll see here uh, a very severely denuded hillside in Bolivia. Um, and if you look at the lower uh, left-hand area of that photo, a little bit to the right of the tree, if you look really hard, you're going to see two homesteads. And my colleague, Jeff Heinrich, who took this picture, likes to say that there is nothing that we can do to improve the food security and livelihood security of those families living on that hillside if we don't address the extreme situation of degradation of the environment. I mean, this picture just says so much. Um, next slide. So when you pair a situation of very vulnerable people already in a precarious state of food security who are very dependent on the land and on the rainfall with the kinds of changes that we're seeing in climate change, so erratic rainfalls, farmers don't know when the rainy season will start, they can't rely on it to continue, it starts and stops. Uh, precipitation is coming down. In, there's, what we're understanding is that we're getting relatively the same amount of precipitation, but it's happening in fewer rainfall events and coming down much heavier, so erosion is exacerbated. We're having prolonged droughts, flash flooding, 50-year floods, and this is really uh, putting people who are already in a precarious state in a state of crisis. So next slide. So what is the solution? What are we doing about it? We are really trying to lift up the need to invest in the relationship between farmers and the land, that if we are concerned about global food security, we need to restore the level of land degradation that the poor are facing around the world and reinvest in that if we want to improve resilience. And we have a number of ways of doing that, really centers around improving soil quality and water management. Um, there's a broader approach called climate agriculture that looks at multiple interventions. There's also watershed restoration, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about, um, as well as efforts around cover crops and agroforestry approaches, incorporating trees into farms. Um, can you go to the next slide? I want to share uh, what we call all the good news um, and what we're trying to share with, with donors and others that when we do invest in storing degraded land, we can reverse soil degradation and uh, have very important impacts on farm productivity. And we can do this really quickly, actually. So if you look at this photo of this very lush uh, green area, this, where these people are standing, was one of those incredible gullies like you saw in the previous two pictures. And this group of people, uh, this is the Community Watershed Committee, or representatives of it, they came together 
but checked dams and uh, trenches and planted stabilizing grasses. And by the end of a four-year period, what was a very degraded area, not quite as severely as that hill in Bolivia that you saw, but closer along the lines of the first photo, um, within four years, they restored that to an incredibly lush area where they're planting. And if you look at this picture, you can see yam and maize and banana. And not only did we enable them to retake this land that had been abandoned, but we did measurements at the beginning of the project. And we can demonstrate that we actually increased the flow of streams. Uh, we actually helped streams that had dried up during the dry season to become perennial. Elders in the community told us that streams, in their memory, had never run the whole year round. But after four years of this program intervention, the streams were running all year round. We also measured well levels, and we raised the water table. And by improving the quality of the soil and the ability of the soil to retain water, we actually increased yields even above and beyond the, the land that was recaptured for planting. Um, so it was really a tremendous impact. And if we want to help communities move to the next stage of prosperity, we can't do it without looking at the natural resources that they have. Um, and that brings me to, to the question about sustainable environmental approaches and sustainable community approaches. And I just want to highlight the encyclical from Pope Francis because he, I think the way the encyclical addresses this issue is, is so relevant for the work that we're doing. And he says, uh, humanity is faced not with two separate crises, one environmental and the other social, but one complex crisis, which is social and environmental. And then, next slide, please. I'm sorry, I may have forgotten to tell you. So you have Pope Francis, and then we should go, whoops, and stuck. There we go. You should see another slide that's a, a circle. Yes, there. So, okay, so what at CRS, we are operating in the framework of integral human development. So in our agriculture program, we're not looking just at increasing agricultural production and food security, we're really looking at building social capital and helping people to achieve their full human potential. So we have developed a, a set of what we call smart skills. They're five skills that we feel every farmer needs to know to be successful, and they involve things like financial skills and natural resource management skills, but fundamental to everything is group organization, the ability to come together and work together. And we do training in this area, and then we help farmers actually to form groups and continue to build their capacity once they're in those groups with more training, uh, providing access to information that they may not have been getting, and then helping these groups to link to external actors. So bringing them in contact with municipal decision makers, with government extension agents, with private sector agricultural input suppliers, with other farmer groups. And the goal is to empower them so that they have agency over their own lives and that they're assessing their problems, they're assessing their assets, they're working together to address those, 
and feeling that control over their lives. And when we do evaluations at the end of our programs, we hear time and time again that from the farmer perspective, one of the most significant changes is that they feel in control of their future and they feel proud of their accomplishments. And I think this is taking it beyond the immediate agricultural production into the human context and the ability of communities to work together. And um, just to bring that last point in, it's very tangible. If you look at the denuded hillside in Bolivia and the incredibly lush hillside in Malawi, there's no way that that can happen without empowerment of the community and ownership of the community. And so the people who are, are standing above that dam are the very people who formed the watershed committee, who provided the labor to build the plant the grasses, who developed bylaws on how the watershed would be maintained, how the community would use the resources of the watershed. And I think one of the, the testaments to success, particularly in this project, was that people from neighboring communities approached the watershed communities that were involved in the project and asked them to train them on how to replicate what they've done in their own watersheds. So I think that that partnering of humankind and nature and the need to work together for sustainability, it really comes through in these kinds of restoration projects. So I'll just, I'll leave it at that and thank you.
Now, wherever did that goal came from? It came from the American Baptist Home Mission Society under the leadership of Reverend Jutsum Warkala from 1968 to 72. Warkala knew in his bones that when an institution decided about human well-being, all of the Japanese American people on the West Coast were rounded up in other places and put in concentration camps. He knew what happened when institutions made choices. We are always determined by the choices that our institutions make and shape us. That I learned from Morikawa. Secondly, I learned that God is good and in control of this world. God is loving, just as we heard in this presentation here, and all-powerful. And God's will will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. That was Morikawa's inner conviction. And that's how he led the board and staff of this whole mission society, which is through a whole century has been oriented to reaching and touching people on the frontier uh, to uh, assess what the trends were that were going to shape human beings and the mission of the church in the future. And that when the board ranked those trends in 1970, and I was brought on the staff because I had a PhD in sociology and religion to help them do that, and uh, to take all of this work that the board and staff members have done and help them focus it. Um, they rank population explosion, number one, exhaustion of resources, pollution, number two, which is what you're dealing with. Uh, third, they rank the battle of the have-nots versus the haves uh, between poor and affluent countries and within the affluent countries. And fourth, they rank urbanization, secularization. That was in 1970. And as we in the board and staff struggled with this, we saw we're moving toward a goal of uh, peace on earth or a goal of ecological wholeness and social justice together or eco-justice. Now, my third point is how, what I've learned about moving toward that kind of an ecology justice goal. Uh, I've always been a student and a, a study, student of history, and it became very clear to me that for America to move, as a lead nation toward balance, uh, out of a uh, framework of moving toward infinite growth, to one of ecological wholeness and social justice as its priority, how would you ever get there? Well, we've done things like that before. We've done things, and the way we do them is by organizing voluntary associations to get changes in public policy and practice. How do you, why do women today have the right to vote? How come your husbands, as women, don't determine what happens to property in your family? How did those changes occur? It took almost a century. We're dealing with changes that will take a long time to occur. They're not going to change overnight. <coughs> but uh, if the that women's movement to get the vote made the kind of changes in England and the United States that they did, or the kind of movement that those few people started working on ending slavery and the huge changes that occurred in this country and in England uh, because of those people. We today, if we organize voluntary associations for change, can do that. I was led by a sermon that Morikawa produced, gave once in which he said every minister should be involved in the community for, at some point for its good. And so I, I came under conviction. I'm, I'm living in this suburban house, uh, and I've always fished. And one day I was fishing on French Creek 
And as I pulled my hip boot out of the water after the afternoon's fishing, seeing that this stream is going to be destroyed like so many I've seen as I travel across the country, and I thought, I can't stand it anymore. I've got to do something about it. Uh, we formed a chapter, Trout Unlimited, in 1976. We picked that because Trout Unlimited had a goal of preserve, protect, and restore, and it was an aggressive conservation organization that made a focus on clean water. And we learned a lot. First of all, we, when we started out, we didn't know anything. It, it took us three years to kind of get our feet on the ground. Um, then we began to learn some things. And what I've learned is that everything depends on a point person appearing. Like I did when I said I can't stand anymore, I've got to do something. But no one person can do everything. And one person appeared, Joe Armstrong, and he said maybe if we could get exceptional value classification for the gem of Chester County, because that's our area of accountability in Chester County, which is Valley Creek, maybe we could take a step towards saving this creek. So Joe got two or three other Trout Unlimited members set up card tables like this all over Chester County. Anytime there was a day people were to get it, worked at it for years and sent in uh, handwritten notes and letters to the Pennsylvania DPP. And Joe, when he takes on something, he really takes it on. We got over 8,000 letters and postcards, and the DEP had to respond to all of it personally. Now, anybody who knows institutions and how they function in Pennsylvania knows that it's easy to downgrade the classification of the stream. You try to upgrade the classification of the stream in Pennsylvania, that's like, that's like raiding, raiding upstream in a flood. You can't get it, okay? But we got it. Was a narrow thing, but it was all those people who wrote what made a difference. Now, coming down close to the present, uh, when when we do things as businesses and companies and governments, we, we usually try to do things right, but we have to do things that are only immediate to make a profit. And when a different township took on the role of handling the sewer authority for the upper suburbs. Uh, they basically, all of them have developed this sewer system, carrying sewerage down to the sewer tank. And they never set aside enough money so that 40 years after they started this process, the old line began to break. And it broke once, and they spent over a million dollars containing it and then fixing the pipe. The next time, it happened in the middle of the winter, they dumped all the sewage right above the turnpike bridge and it went down through Valley Creek, all the way through Valley Forge National Historical Park, right into the school kill, and people in, in Philadelphia drank it, okay? It's a lot of sewer water. And then it happened again. And we in Toronto Limited always worked with townships and the county and the state uh, around their accountabilities. We never, we never really moved toward suing somebody unless it's clear that the stream is going to be irretrievably suffered. As best we could tell, they didn't have a plan in place that when this prep line broke again, what they would do. And so we approached David over here and some other folks from the NELC, and we sued the township. Now, that didn't make them happy. Actually, it didn't make us happy. We never sued for money. We just sued to get to take care of the street. Now, my basic point is this. <coughs> as students or as faculty, we have a job to do. And it will happen when we ourselves step out 
put ourselves on the line and do something to make this world that we live in a better place. You can't go to school and not connect what you're studying with Diamond's 12 trends. You must do this now. Despite the climate, all over the world, in China, India, everywhere, that you can have infinite growth and it will go on forever. But that's insane. And every person that you talk to will admit it just will not get communicated politically, organizationally. We all act like we can build roads, buildings, cities, increase the population forever. We can't do it. We cannot do it, speaking as a minister. This is foolishness. You've got to use this thing that the Lord gave us. And that's your job as students. And then to volunteer at some little point and live with it long enough in your own country to make it work. And, you, and the Lord will work with you. And it will happen. And you'll pay a price for it. But you re realize your destiny.
there are so many different strategies <coughs> for trying to skin the cat when it comes to environmental and social change. You heard from attorneys, you heard from people doing research, you heard about organizing at the grassroots level, you heard about international strategies, localized strategies. Like I said, we look at the problems, if it's environment or really the systemic problems, which I think of mostly as too much money in politics and democracy, access and influence in the wrong hands of democracy. So our system has turned instead of one person will vote, it's often whoever has the most money has essentially the most votes or access and power. <coughs> that has really created a David and Goliath fight in how we tackle environmental issues and other issues. And given how out of scale, out of balance the scales are, really what we try and do at an environment is consolidate people power. As Mark said, uh, we believe very strongly at Penn Environment that this is really the um, singular path forward if we're going to uh, tackle some of our pressing environmental issues. And that's why uh, we are out every day knocking on doors, building an online list of activists, getting people to go to the legislature, reach out to their elected officials, and hold them accountable in our democratic process as the strategy by which to tackle these issues and um, promote solutions. Um, so the third question on how um, this promotes environmental and community uh, sustainability. I, I think we've covered this a few ways. I, this, I think, honestly, for the environmental community is a bit of a tightrope walk. On the one hand, I think we don't want to um, you know, poo-poo people doing their lifestyle choice stuff. But as you've heard over and over on some of these profound issues like climate change, um, like fracking, there are big systemic decisions being made every day, and there are carbon footprints that are bigger than our own. Uh, obviously, we have to keep doing everything in our power, but if we're really going to tackle an issue like climate change, uh, reduce our carbon footprint on the timeline that uh, the scientific community has said, we're really going to have to rein in some of the biggest and worst sources of climate pollution. Uh, Administrator Gardner made a great point. Um, if you don't understand how historic uh, the clean power plant is, not only in tackling uh, the number one, the largest source of global warming pollution in this country, but it's also the first time that the federal government has really, in, in a comprehensive way, gone after that large source of pollution. Um, we're at really a historic crossroads right now in the uh, fight against and so I think when it comes to promoting sustainability, of course, every day we have to do our piece. But I think the most important part is people need to engage civically and own it, hit the nail on the head, and hold our elected officials accountable and be cognizant that, just like we have to do our part, uh, some of the largest sources of pollution, um, the worst environmental actors um, should also be held I think there's another benefit when it comes to uh, sustainability and um, you know, sort of the values we, we choose to live by beyond just the short-term environmental piece, which is, I think this is just also better for democracy in general. Um, I think we have an important role, uh, as many social change movements do that, when the public feels uh, and is uh, disenfranchised, they really feel like they are left out of the process that part of what we can do by showing 
success on the environmental front is to reinvigorate people in the democratic process and show them the value of civic engagement at a time when so many people question uh, their role in the democratic process. So I think that's a really important part of what we try and do. We don't, I think as a movement, we don't talk about that a lot, even though I think it has a ton of value uh, to what we do. So, um, so that's a pretty good part. I, I'll say one more thing and then maybe wrap up. Um, I think Owen made really an important point that I hope you'll take away, which is in many social change fights, it's not just the environment. <coughs> There is a moment in time and a crossroads, usually at the beginning of a fight, where it feels like you are up against insurmountable odds and people have to take uh, and choose a path forward. I think the examples Owen gave were quite good ones. You know, if you look at the suffragette movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the anti-war movement, very early on in the stage of those movements, there were more steps backwards than forwards, and leaders of those movements and activists sat around and had to decide, is this doomed to failure, or do we keep plotting forward? And I think on some of these really big environmental issues, we're at that crossroads right now. I think we're there on fracking for sure. I feel like we're getting closer, hopefully do a light at the end of the tunnel on the climate change issue. I think if you would have talked to activists on climate change 10 or 15 years ago and said, look, you know, we're taking on ExxonMobil, uh, the largest corporation on the planet. We're taking on Shell Oil, the third largest corporation on the planet. They have deep pockets, they have access and influence. This is doomed to failure. Um, we could have gone down a different path, but people um, decided to plow forward. And, um, you know, we're making a headway, as the administrator said, there's the Clean Power Plan. EPA has done historic uh, efforts to reduce uh, pollution from automobiles and trucks. Uh, there's the Paris Agreement. There's a couple that I don't think Sean mentioned. The uh, agreement or works to negotiate with the two biggest other countries that have carbon footprints, China and India, and really profound in um, what that means on the climate change fight. So I guess I'll wrap up by saying, you know, I think we're always at that crossroads of can we win? Is this worth the fight? I think our history has shown us in the big uh, movements of the past that it is that we can achieve victory uh, as long as we keep um, you know, our eyes on the prize. So uh, I want to thank the doctor and the administrator and the great panel folks who I love working with all of you for coming. Uh, thank you for letting me back clean up.
state food worse than grown water than sometimes it's bottled water. So I try um, not to make Villanova or Dr. Weston or you know this is your money that was paid for it. You're not the enemy, right? I think we have to be in it together. Um, you know, and Joanne and Mark and I, like our fights are in Harrisburg where we're fighting massive fracking companies that take water from our rivers by millions of gallons free of charge. You have, you know, a drought in California, big fight with Nestle over withdrawals. To, to me, those are the enemies, um, first and foremost, or I can use the word enemies, not, you know, you or you know, whoever the, the poor person who works here in the auditorium is who's getting lambasted and nice to So that's my, my opinion, but. I wanted to just add one thing, which is if you care a lot about the fact that we were provided water bottles, it's never too early to start campaigning and like learning about what it means to run a campaign. I know it's something that even at this stage in my career I struggle a lot with is how do you structure a great campaign and take it to the finish line? This is a pretty clear goal, right? Like if your goal is I want my college to have a policy that when speakers come we provide glasses of water rather than water bottles. That's such a clear goal. It would be such an awesome campaign for you to get going into something that you really care about. I share Dave's perspective that, um, you know, most most of us probably carry removable water bottles when we can. You'll see I actually brought a water bottle like this with me because I was in the Capitol all day and they have no bottle filling stations and no, no um, water fountains that are currently functioning. So one of the pet projects that I'd love to take on if I had extra free time is to convince our state capital to have functioning water fountains. So maybe this is your project that you're like, I'm really frustrated that you guys were giving these water bottles. I want to talk to the administration about it and learn how to run a campaign. I think it would be a really interesting project to undertake because you probably find at some point catering has to be involved, food services. <laughs> you're going to get through all these weird administrative labels that you never expected to which is kind of what we experience sometimes working with the government. The answers are rarely as simple as they seem. But I think, I mean, I think your sentiment is well taken, and, and you know, we all struggle with those issues on a kind of daily basis. I drove up from D.C. today. You know, I could have taken the train, but there's always kind of a time versus, you know, getting things done rush. But, but I think it's a good point, and um, I think it'd be a great project to undertake and then write about it, you know? Because um, I think it, there's a, probably a good story to tell that, especially if you are out. But I, they never 
surprised when I have to fish on the surface. I fish, but I know that one sooner or later is going to rise. And that's what I think an organizer is looking for. You're looking for a person who comes under a sense of conviction and they see what's going on and they say to themselves, I want to do something about this. Like I did that day uh, when I put my foot up on the bank and I knew I couldn't stand it any longer. So I think it can be, it can cause a person to despair. Because sometimes in Trial Limited, we've gone on for two or three years and never had anybody volunteer to take hold of something. It's very frustrating. But I kind of know that if we keep on, sooner, there's gotta be, there's people out there, if we can just reach them, they'll come forward. And they do. But they never, but then they never do what you think they'll do. <laughs> because every person is different with a different conviction, and they move differently than you'd ever expect. They move toward the goal, but they don't do it the way that you'd expect. But I, I think David touched on that too. I mean, that, that sense, most people are locked in, and the reason why is I think we're locked in partly because we just have been reared in this way, and partly also because it's really hard to see ourselves stepping out, and also because we know we'll pay a price if we do it. All of those things are there, and also many people are so overwhelmed with their own struggles in life that so you can't expect everybody to come on, but some people will. The panel that dogs me since I was one of the ones who brought up the, the leadership issue. Part of it is, is information, knowledge, being able to share. Part of it's also trying to focus it on a, a scale that people can actually tie to their lives. So if you're talking to fellow students and saying, we've got to do something about climate change, we're not talking about taking on um, you know, the big power plants, it's, it's the water bottle issue. It's the, what is in your community, what is it that, that you have some power over to effectuate and get, as soon as you start getting people engaged and kind of dealing with the smaller stuff, because um, I, I fully believe that people, when they know what the right thing is uh, and it's easy, they'll do it. Uh, so the more you can get them engaged in smaller things, the more they'll start paying attention to the larger issues and how it impacts their their everyday life. All right, I think that's a that's a great place to end. I do wish we had a little bit more time to, to have a discussion. Um, if you want to try to corner one of these folks, uh, but I did promise that we would do a hard stop at seven thirty. So uh, we will we will end. I want to thank Administrator Garvin and uh, the five panelists for taking the time out today to share their thoughts. I hope you guys. Appreciated this diverse uh, set of viewpoints that the panelists were bringing to, to the conversation, um, and, and uh, have some some lessons learned and, and go forward and, uh, and, and take some of this apart. So thank you all. For